Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, episode 23, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K., in a few moments, we'll be joined by TCM author and contributor and special guest from our Christmas episode last year, Jeremy Arnold, who will share his top 10 classic Oscar Best Picture winners. One of the films we hope made the list is Silence of the Lambs, one of just three films in Oscar history to win the Big Five Awards. The historic Roxy Theater in Bremerton is showing the iconic thriller tonight, Friday, April 9th, and tomorrow, Saturday, April 10th at 9 p.m. to celebrate the film's 30th anniversary. 30 years and back on the big screen. All good things to those who wait, Clarice. We'll be there this evening, so come on out and join us. And uh, tickets can be purchased at the box office or by visiting farawayentertainment.com. And don't forget to tune into our latest episode of In the Mix, direct from the Bay Street Bistro in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. We share some film trivia over a delicious cannibal cooler cocktail, which you can make at home or enjoy at the Bistro this Sunday as part of their weekly Sunday Supper. This week, the menu is Dr. Lecter Approved. Fava bean and smashed pea hummus, crew of egg and sausage, spicy blackened chicken over wild rice, and a sangui nacho dolce, half blood oranges stuffed with chocolate mousse. So call for reservations at 360-602-0310 as tables are going to fill up quickly. Or visit BayStreetBistro.com. Bon appetit. And if you're in the moon for lighter <clears throat> well, viewing fare this weekend or want a good laugh before letting Dr. Lecter into your head, jump online tomorrow, Saturday, April 10th at 6 p.m. for Virtual Theater 2020's performance of Tartuffe by Moliere. Their presentation of this classic farce will be followed by live talkback with the cast and crew directly following the show. Visit their Facebook page for more information at vtheater2020. And also on stage, virtually, of course, this weekend is a modern retelling of Shakespeare's classic Othello, presented by the Women's Theatre Festival and starring our friend and guest on episode 13, Seattle actor Zandi Carlson, in the pivotal role of Iago. Othello plays tonight, tomorrow, April 10th, and April 16th and 17th at 8 p.m. each night. Tickets are pay what you can, so visit womenstheaterfestival.com for more information and tickets. And thank you for supporting local theatre. That's a weekend full of classic shows, and if there's one person we turn to when it comes to classics, it's our friend Jeremy Arnold. Jeremy is an author, film historian, and commentator. His new book, The Essentials, Volume 2, 52 More Must-See Movies and Why They Matter, was recently published by Running Press and Turner Classic Movies. It is his second companion book to TCM's long-running Essentials program, which profiles the most vital and influential movies in film history. In addition to the two Essentials books, Jeremy has written Christmas in the Movies, 30 Classics to Celebrate the Season, which we featured back in December. Also, Lawrence of Arabia, the 50th Anniversary. Two essays in The Call of the Heart, John M. Stahl and Hollywood Melodrama. Contributions to Janine Basinger's 2003 edition of the World War II combat film, Anatomy of a Genre. Numerous essays and liner notes for home entertainment releases, including four Frank Capra titles. And over 600 programming articles to date for the Turner Classic Movies website. Jeremy's commentating work includes 14 audio commentaries for the Blu-ray or DVD release of classic films, most recently Wings of the Hawk, and stints as a guest host on TCM with Ben Mankiewicz. He joins us today from his home in Los Angeles. Welcome back, Jeremy. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you, Greg and Matt. It's uh, really nice to be back with you because I enjoyed the last conversation very much. 
Good to hear. Well, it's Oscar season now. We had you on before it was Christmas season. So while we're trying to you know take advantage of the extra time before the ceremony to catch up on the current Best Picture uh, nominees list, it's also a good time, I think, to catch up on some of our favorite Best Picture winners from uh, from the past. So we've been thinking about our list of past films we, we wanted to revisit, but we thought that with your vast knowledge and experience compiling the essentials books and some of the other work you've done, that you'd be able to bring a different perspective uh, to the conversation. Yeah. And speaking of the essentials books, we're going to chat with you in a bit in segment two about your latest volume from TCM, The Essentials, volume two, 52 more must-see movies and why they matter. So many lists to keep up with. So let's start with that Oscar top 10. How uh, did you go about compiling your list? What personal criteria do you use? Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, these things are always going to be personal to a large degree with anybody, no matter you know how much of a so-called expert they are. For me, it really comes down to the films that really leave the most impact in me. And even that is kind of a general way to go about it, I suppose. But I would say films that I particularly like to revisit, number one, you know, there are some films like Oliver or uh, Ben-Hur even, which is so famous for the chariot race. But really, who wants to sit down and watch Ben-Hur over and over throughout their (laughs) lives? I mean, I, you know, I know it's on TV every Easter, but it doesn't really hold up to that amount of reviewing, in my opinion. Other epics do, and I'm sure we will get into that in the conversation. And also, the uh, Oscar itself is is not always <laughs> simply about quality. A lot has, has to do with politics and the industry, and often content over over technique and craft and filmmaking style is is valued. You know what a movie is about, what social issues, for example. And you know, overall, that 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 kind of stuff is a little less interesting, I think, to people who really just love movies and want to watch good movies, well told stories, well crafted cinema. Although sometimes those two sides of the coin coalesce perfectly. And there are some examples of that too. So I guess for me, it's it's craftsmanship, it's visual storytelling, it's really movies as great cinema that use the tools of filmmaking to create lasting works of art that have affect me emotionally and which I want to revisit and often revisit and continually find new things. And that's something that I think will come up in this conversation too quite a bit. Yeah, you mentioned the politics. Matt and I, with some of our other guests, have talked about that in in the context of what do we think is going to win this year's you know best picture and some of these other things. And politics is a is a huge component of that. But yeah, you try to distill it down into hey, what's really a quality picture? So, but without further ado, you know, why don't we get started on on the top ten list? So I guess we'll go in in reverse order. What do you have as your number ten? Before I give number ten, I just wanted to very quickly give you three titles that just barely missed out on my top 10 <laughs> because it was really hard to like we had the you know, same conversation out. i think about the christmas book <laughs> how do you pick your top 30 which ones were a 31 a close 31 <laughs> so okay so the the three that i i didn't include were all about eve uh annie hall and rebecca which are all movies that i like very much but for what for various reasons just didn't make my own top 10 list so I don't want to spend, you know, waste time talking about those since they're not in the top 10, but just wanted to include them uh, in the conversation. But my top 10 is uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, 1946. This is William Wyler's classic uh, about three servicemen returning from World War II, returning home, played by Dana Andrews and Frederick March and Harold Russell. And they each have their own struggles to re-enter society. 
and their lives. And the movie, you know, it gives us a strong sense of what their loved ones have been going through as well on the home front during the war. You know, they were suffering in a way just as much as, as those men. And it's a very beautiful and heartfelt picture that it sums up the era perfectly, but it all, and it captured the mood of the nation in 1946. But I find that it still moves audiences today in a way that touches upon not just the idea of what post-World War II America was like, but the period after any war. And you know, sadly, that means it'll never really be out of date because there's always going to be another war where this some level of this will will happen. And the sense of of mourning and and change and the way things can never really go back to what they were before. And the power of love to endure despite all of those things. That is what the movie is really about and what keeps it so vital. And it's a long film. It's three hours long, but it's just so beautifully crafted and uh, it's, it's moving to me every time. And um, you know, it's uh, people who don't see a lot of classic films from that era may not see this one as much as Casablanca or singing in the rain or something like that. But I think when, if people see it and sit down to watch it, they, they tend to really become absorbed by it and moved by it. Yeah. I think it won seven total Academy Awards. Yeah, seven total. And I'm never going to argue with a, a film that stars Myrna Loy. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, agreed. All right. So how about number nine? Number nine is a total change of pace. The silence of the lambs, 1991. All right. Now this is still to me, just a model thriller. Uh, it's also, I think, one of the few movies not made by Alfred Hitchcock that can truly justifiably be called Hitchcockian, which is a term that is, I think, overused. <laughs> um, and that's because of Jonathan Demme, the director, his, his command of point of view and the way he aligns the audience with, with characters to generate suspense. That's really the core of what makes a Hitchcock movie a Hitchcock movie to us. And like the best of Hitchcock, it also puts voyeurism in the act of seeing. It makes it part of the story and part of the construction of the story. So, you know, at the end, what we see, what Jodie Foster sees, what, what Buffalo Bill, the character, sees in that last great sequence, that is the stuff that is creating the suspense right there and the involvement. You know, Jonathan Demme just uh, had a beautiful command of that. But also Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter. Now that's, this is the first thing we think of when we think of Silence of the Lambs. It's one of the all-time iconic villains and performances really in American cinema. And it's, you know, if not, for, if Anthony Hopkins had not played Hannibal Lecter, I don't know that it would have won the Oscar, would have won the five Oscars that it did. But, you know, he captured the mood of the nation and of moviegoers in a way that made it pretty much inevitable that, that he would win, the movie would win and, and become so iconic. How, that said, however, I well remember when this movie opened in February 1991, before that year's Oscar ceremony even happened, Dances with Wolves won for 1990, that Oscar ceremony was weeks after Silence of the Lambs opened. So no one thought that this movie would be an Oscar contender a year later. It was just a thriller. It was just a routine Hollywood thriller. And so I love the fact that it held on and managed to transition into, into an Oscar film, which, you know, in recent years had always been either a, had always, the Oscar had always gone to a big epic or some art house film released in December in five, on five screens. And in fact, the previous year, 
It Dances with Wolves beat out Goodfellas, which we all know should have won <laughs> Best <laughs> Picture. And so I always saw this as sort of writing the ship in a way, like, you know, giving it to the most deserving movies, regardless of the fact that it's, quote unquote, just a genre movie and not some self-important epic. It did win the top five. So Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading, Best Actress in a Leading, Best Director and Best Writing for the Screenplay. I agree with you. This is a fantastic film. It would have been a completely different one without Anthony Hopkins. Uh, he wasn't the first pick. And uh, Jodie Foster yep. and, and him didn't really even work, quote unquote, together in a lot of these scenes. Uh, like you said, the um, the camera work, they were looking often just right into the camera. So all that emotion, they had to just pull that from within. So I'm with you on that one. Absolutely right. And this is also a film that I've seen many times. And even though I, you know, I know the ending. It always involves me as if mm -hmm. it's the almost like it's the first time seeing it. And um, you just got to give kudos to to Demi for for that. I think absolutely. All right, number eight. Number eight is The Godfather Part Two. Now, look, I I considered the the problem here of the Godfather movies. I didn't really want to waste two slots on both Godfather movies. <laughs> if you put it that way, and you know, I I love the Godfather movies just fine. But I, I decided to just include The Godfather Part Two because of those two films, this is the one that excites me the most as a piece of cinema. I enjoy watching it again more than I enjoy watching the first Godfather again. And that's because it's, you know, the way it moves back and forth through time, you know, it was brilliant to make it both a sequel and a prequel. And the flashbacks and flash forwards to me are just more exciting as, as, uh, as a film. It also, you know, both of the films, all, all of the films, really, even though part three is not quite as good, it's that blend of epic and intimate characterization that makes these films so entrancing. The atmosphere, the cast, the dialogue, the beautiful score by Nino Rhoda, Gordon Willis's cinematography, they're all pitch perfect. And uh, the, the first two Godfather films really define the era of early 70s Hollywood, much like Best Years of Our Lives did the middle of the 1940s and not just in terms of the what they capture in their content but the style and production of each film really represents the highest craft of what hollywood could achieve at the time and uh both have stayed very fresh and very watchable what do you think about these two well i i think one thing is i think i i think i saw godfather 2 before i saw godfather 1 which to your point it's kind of a prequel. So you, you, I think you can do that. There's a flexibility there um, that allows you to do that. But one of the things I think Matt and I touched on a few months ago in an, in an episode we did where we talked about de-aging in Hollywood. And, and this to us was kind of the, the argument for not pursuing the de-aging thing because without De Niro as the young Vito, it's, it, it, if you tried to de-age Brando or, or however, I mean, it just played a lot better having the younger actor and would have just changed the landscape completely. I agree. Yeah. And after what we saw, what we saw, they did to De Niro and the Irishman um, rather than, and, and, and personally, I like to see what younger actor they'll pick uh, to play, especially a, a, a character portrayed by a megastar like a De Niro or a, a Brando. I like to see who they're going to, you know, they match up. Um, it's part of the, the creativity of the process, I would think. But uh, I mean, I feel a little bad. Pacino didn't get uh, didn't get the Oscar for this one. I'm just a huge Pacino fan. But yeah, uh, yeah I I think it does speak to all of all of Greg's points. No De Niro uh, movie would have been completely different. So great casting. Oh, impeccable casting. Yeah. 
So yeah, so uh, we'll move to number what are we seven? Number Godfather seven, part one. <laughs> <laughs> no, sad to say, number seven is Schindler's List, nineteen ninety three. Now this is kind of interesting to me because I, I realized as I was thinking about all these films that I've seen Silence of the Lambs many times over the years, and Schindler's List I've seen very few times. I think just twice, but it has stayed with me very vividly over the years, just as vividly as Silence of the Lambs. I mean, I can still see many frames, many scenes from, from Schindler's List in my mind's eye, you know, as if I had just seen it. And to me, that really says something about the power of those images, um, the power of the filmmaking. And, you know, I also remember how at this point, Steven Spielberg was was still thought of mainly for fantasy and for the more pure entertainment films. Everyone said he hadn't grown up. Uh, he was just making sort of kid stuff. Now, that was nonsense, of course. I mean, his films had long since shown him to be a very sophisticated storyteller with a great command of the film medium. But this was really important to him finally getting the industry respect in a way that he hadn't before. And the documentary like feel of the film, the documentary look of it combined with some more melodramatic scenes, that blend worked. And I felt that he accomplished something that really one wouldn't have thought possible, which was to show the horrors of the Holocaust in a way that does not exploit the victims or sensationalize the violence and the horrors of it all, but also doesn't make it so unrelenting that all the audience wants to do is turn their head away from the screen. It's hard hitting, but he found just he he found just the right boundary, just the right line. I I thought to not go too far. And the other thing is, I also vividly remember Ray Fiennes. This was for most of us the first movie we'd ever seen him in. He he had done some other stuff before, but this he was basically an unknown in America, and he was so riveting and terrifying uh, as that Nazi commander. And it's still every time I see him in any movie, and this is. 30 years later, I still always, in a way, in some unconscious way, remember him in Schindler's List because that was my introduction to him and it was very powerful. And every every time I see him do something that's really different from that, which is most things, I'm just sort of in awe of him as an actor. So um, yeah, this is uh, a very powerful film. So Fine's kind of set the standard in your mind of that, of that evil Nazi, uh, the same way that Lecter did for the psychopath. Those are the types of actors and, and portrayals that we measure other performances against. Yeah. And of course, you know, we'd all seen tons of other Nazis in movies over the years, and not to mention tons of other psychopaths. So it's it kind of it's that actually makes them even more impressive because they found ways to give us those characters, those common movie characters to make them fresh and new and exciting. Yeah, and we talked to uh, Danny Bilson, screenwriter of uh, The Rocketeer and The Five Bloods and a bunch of other stuff a few weeks ago about the balance. And we were talking in the context of war films, of the balance of bringing the reality of war to to the public through through a film, but also balancing it with something to your point, Jeremy, that you don't want to run away from. You know that you that you're entertained, but yet you still get the um, the emotional, the realistic punch. And I agree with you on this one. I think Spielberg caught that balance uh, between that, you know, the, the atrocities and something that's going to keep you engaged for, you know, a few hours. Yeah. A, a, a war movie can never be truly quote unquote realistic, but the skilled filmmakers can find ways of giving the audience a taste of that 
in a way that works in movie terms. So, and yeah, I, you know, I, I um, worked on a book about war movies years ago for Janine Basinger. And uh, so I, I thought about this and wrote about this quite a bit. And she did too, really brilliantly in that book, by the way. Do you think the, the use of uh, black and white in that film uh, is also one of the aspects that helped it kind of stand out? We see that occasionally. Uh, we've got Mank up this year for Best Picture. Uh, do you think that what, that's what gave it some of the, of the realism? Absolutely. No question. And I mean, Spielberg, I th- remember him talking about this himself. I mean, World War II was a black and white war in terms of our experience of it. Yeah, there's some color footage too of it, but it's rare. And um, World War II doesn't quite look right in color. And I, there have been a lot of great World War II movies made in color. So yes, I will give you that. But in terms of realism, the, the black and white definitely helps. Black and white seems to pull out another level of emotion, a, a depth Right. Of, of emotion that color sometimes just kind of whitewashes. Yeah. And I remember the first time I saw it, I, for a while, I thought it actually was documentary footage. I was looking at part of that film and yeah, he was, you know, he was influenced. Uh, there's a, a film in my, in my new essentials volume two book, the battle of Algiers, which is one of the greatest documentary looking features that isn't really a documentary ever made. And that is still very influential. And I I know it it inspired Spielberg a lot in uh, Schindler's List. Okay. All right. So my number six is uh, from the same era, (laughs) Unforgiven, 1992. I see a poster behind you, uh, I think. (laughs) Yes, that's correct. (laughs) I do have an Unforgiven poster. I love Unforgiven. This is one of very few Westerns to win Best Picture. To me, it's Clint Eastwood's masterpiece, masterful grasp of hero, villain, and landscape, which are really, to me, the core elements of Western movie making. Those are the elements that filmmakers of Westerns play with in different ways in in their different Westerns. And that's how you really, that's how I separate the styles of uh, different Western directors. And this is um, a movie that really understands the way the Western genre had developed over the years, because of course, Clint had, you know, been a big part of it over the previous 30 years. And it was seen as a death of the Western film. And it is one. And the thing is, those the, the movies that were about the death of the Western had pretty much been coming out since around 1960. <laughs> and not that every Western since then was about the death of the Western, but the, the Western genre sort of died out with the end of the studio era and the rise of Westerns on television, which sort of ended up kicking the Westerns off the big screen in a general way. And it also is as much about Clint Eastwood's stardom and his persona as it is about anything in the actual story. I mean, what, what we bring to the film based on our knowledge of Clint Eastwood as a Western star plays into the story being told and into our relationship with the Clint Eastwood character. And Clint had a supreme knowledge of this. He was very aware of this as he was making it. He's, you know, he got the script for this in the seventies and he said, I I put it in a drawer for 15 or 20 years because I wanted to age into the role. I wasn't really quite old enough for it yet. And I don't think he meant simply physically old. There's something about the time that has gone by in terms of his development as a star that also made it work better in 1992 than it would have in 1978 or whatever. And it also is just impeccably crafted. And uh, the the score that Eastwood sketched out himself and then Lenny Niehaus orchestrated and developed into a full score, the cinematography, it's um, 
it's a beautiful film that is one that I do like to watch every time. Every I like to revisit quite often. I snuck into the premiere of this film in Westwood Village in L.A. in 1992, and uh, um, that's a nice memory for me. <laughs> well, it's uh, also interesting. The um, one of the Oscars that it did win was for best film editing. Uh, Joel Cox as editor. That's not one that you gets a lot of fanfare. Yeah, there's actually one thing I would say about the editing, and I would point this out to if people listening to us want to re- revisit the film, something to look for that I think is really interesting. You notice how often in the film, in, in any given sequence, Clint Eastwood as the director, he presents the scene through the prism of other characters' reactions to the action. There are tons of reaction shots in almost every scene that has many characters in a scene. Someone will ride into town uh, and or there's a there's that great fight in the street between Richard Harris and um, uh, Gene Hackman. And the, the reaction shots of the people watching on the sidelines makes that scene even more intense than it would otherwise be. It, you know, it channels the intensity, the power, the horror of the fight. But it also, you know, there's a there's a character in the film. I forget the name of the actor who plays him, who's sort of the uh, the the writer, the the chronicler, the, the biographer of the Richard Harris character. And he is sort of like a stand-in for the audience, but also he represents the way the film works as a whole because so much of the way Unforgiven works is about the, the way that we're observing this action. We're observing a different time, a different place. And it plays into the, the themes of the film overall. And the Eastwood brings that down to a level, to like a micro level of the reaction shots to the fight scene, for instance, or to someone riding into town, or this the reaction shots in, in the bar when Clint Eastwood walks in at the end for the great final shootout. There's not necessarily a story necessity for showing those reaction shots. It's a pure storytelling choice. And many other films wouldn't have as many reaction shots. So I would say if anyone looks at this film again, look for the reaction shots and see what, what you think about what role they're playing in the telling of the story. Well, it's available right now on HBO Max uh, for those out there with HBO. So I'm I'm going to have to go revisit this one myself this weekend. Yeah, and and I remember the just thinking how much more complex it was than your traditional western, and it was kind of meta in the way it spoke to you know to your point, Jeremy, about how westerns had been done in the past, and and taking that and almost making a commentary um, on that. So it's really uh, a fantastic film. Uh, number five, I think we're up to. Yeah, on the waterfront, 1954. Well, this has to be in here because it's got one of the most iconic ensemble performances in any Best Picture winner. That's, I think, what we first think of when we think of On the Waterfront is the cast. Marlon Brando, Rod Steiger, Carl Malden, Eva Marie Saint, Lee J. Cobb. It's a masterclass of method acting, which was all the rage at the time. And in the hands of the director, Ilya Kazan, and the the script by Bud Schulberg, you know, it's... Uh, the pieces fit together really perfectly. It was very well attuned to method acting. It it made sense for the intensity and the the tenor of those performances. They work in this film. In another f- story, it would feel overwrought. It would more easily feel overwrought, I think. But the the cast, their performance style, directing, writing, they're all sort of on the same register. So it doesn't feel overwrought. The acting is still very fresh. Even some of the very small roles are played by method actors. And Kazan also, you know, for what is actually a very talky film, 
which to me is, you know, not uh, not a good thing in movies generally. This is just my own taste. It works, though, because the atmosphere that Kazan creates, you know, on the New Jersey docks um, and there's some film noir style scenes at night in New York as well. The sense of place, he, he drew on his own work in documentary filmmaking in the 1930s, which was geared towards social justice issues. And he was also inspired by Italian neorealism of recent years in the way that he shot the waterfront and the, the longshoremen. The faces are so vivid, you know, of the, all those, those guys in the crowd there, uh, even the ones who don't have any dialogue. So uh, that's, that's what we remember the most. And it really holds up uh, very beautifully. And I had seen it for, for the first time, uh, actually a couple of months ago, I was putting the other piece of furniture, put it on TV because it was, you know, it just happened to be on, on TCM, I think. And thought, you know, it's, it's obviously a critically acclaimed film, blah, blah, blah. But I, I literally sat and watched it for the entire film Did not, you know, stop working on the furniture. I was so engaged by the, by the thing. And, and I remember thinking, um, the, reactions on that you have on, on these actors when they're you know all together this, this huge ensemble and, and thinking it's so real knowing what i've seen from you know growing up on the east coast and and being around that sort of an environment even in present day i mean sure it's set decades ago but it still i think rings true from an emotional perspective and um it's just a fantastic cast Brando had a lot of things to say in his autobiography, Songs My Mother Taught Me, about working with uh, Eli Kazan and uh, the relationship that they had. No, he had a fascinating career. His his papers, his archives are held at Wesleyan University, which was where I went to college. And uh, so when I, I took a course on his films in college and we were able to look through a lot of you know, his own, his scripts and his script notes on a lot of these scripts, uh, it was really fascinating. I mean, he really, I mean, put a huge amount of thought into the character relationships, the character development, and how he was going to represent that visually. That's what a lot of his no, his notations on the scripts refer to. Really interesting. Also, just a very quick side note, there's a really good lesson in this film for screenwriters. Um, there's a scene where either, there's a scene where either Brando or even Marie Saint are telling the other a piece of information that we, the audience, already know. We've, we're aware of it. I can't remember specifically what it is. And one rule in screenwriting is you never want to make the audience have to sit through the same piece of information more than once. So we know it. So, But it was important to the story for us to see that one of those characters was telling the other this information. So rather than make us listen to it all over again, he shows it in an extreme long shot. They're sitting like on the edge of the water somewhere, and Carl Malden is in the foreground watching this happen. And so it's through the prism of Malden aware that this information is being transmitted from one to the other. And Kazan plays his reaction to that. And it's only a few seconds long, but it just always struck me that that's a really good little example of how to, how to handle something like that, where you have to show it again, but you don't want the audience to have to hear it again. Well, we're approaching the top three, but that means we've got to talk about number four next. What's your number fourth pick, Jeremy? It happened one night, 1934. One of the first and greatest screwball comedies, romantic comedies, also one of only eight or nine comedies to win Best Picture. Comedies and Westerns are, are not particular favors of Oscar. And this is, yeah, along with 20th Century, this is one of the movies that launched the screwball comedy genre. And like Silence of the Lamb, there are actually two things that this film has in common with Silence of the Lambs, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, tell us, please. <laughs> One is that this film was the first to win all five of the top 
Oscars, picture, director, actor, actress, screenplay. That happened again with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and it happened a third time with The Silence of the Lambs. That's, it's a very rare achievement. The other thing it has in common with Silence of the Lambs is that this was just basically a, a little movie that no one expected to be anything. Like Silence wasn't expected to compete for Oscars. This movie, it was a miracle it was practically made because no one who made it really even wanted to make it. People wanted to drop out. It was made by Columbia Pictures, which was more of a Poverty Row studio at the time. Clark Gable was loaned by MGM, uh, by Louis B. Mayer as punishment for refusing to take another role. Like that's how little everyone thought of this film. Capra, who directed it at one point, tried to drop the whole thing because it was such a, a, a chore to get it made. But it got made and the audiences in Depression era America discovered it and turned it into a huge hit. And it was reconsidered by the, by the critics and people realized it was actually a pretty masterful film. In, in the way that it makes fun of uh, the, the upper class of people with money in this country, that was one of the hallmarks of the screwball comedy, as well as fast talking and putting screwball antics above romance. Although this film is also a romantic comedy, it's kind of a, a mixture of the two. Um, but I think that it's because it came out during the Depression, audiences really gleaned onto this making fun of the rich element of the story. And, you know, they enjoyed laughing at, at these characters, but they were also very much taken in by the romance between, between Gable and Claudette Colbert. And it's, you know, one of the key films that still inspires any romantic comedy today. I mean, this is one of the grand grandmothers of the genre. So there's also a fantasy aspect to this story that I think worked in 1934. I mean, the whole idea of making fun of rich people is part of it. Also, the 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 way that Gable is this ordinary reporter who latches on to this, you know, uh, rich, careless uh, uh, socialite. There's also a fantasy aspect to that that works in this era. Do you think that the uh, the poking fun at the aristocracy thing? Do you think that was a the hallmarks of Capra films? I, you know, I think of a movie that we talked about a lot back at Christmas time is, you know, It's a Wonderful Life. There's definitely that common working man against the big bad rich guy in town uh, kind of a theme. Is that something that we see frequently in Capra films? Yeah, but we also see it frequently in 1930s screwball comedies. True. I mean, it's in almost every one, to be honest. <laughs> common sentiment in the country at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's still fodder for comedy. I mean, it always, it always will be, I think. Pick number three. What's next? The Apartment, 1960. Ah, yes. To me, this is all about the blend, the incredible blend of tones in this film. Comedy, drama, romance, cynicism. Billy Wilder, who wrote, produced, and directed the film and won Oscars for all three, he said that he, he always said he didn't classify his films. He said, if they laugh, it's a comedy. And um, this film will make us laugh and cry, but not in a saccharine way at all. You know, it makes screwball comedy and deep, dark trauma both feel at home in the same picture. And when a film can believably scale those heights and plumb those depths, to me, that's a sign of a master at work. I mean, that is really hard to do. I think it's the hardest thing to do in movies is to blend tones and emotions in the audience like that. And also, we hardly ever see such sophistication in comedy anymore. I think the state of American film comedy has been pretty dismal for the last 20 years or so, 30 years maybe. Uh, this is a good reminder of what is possible in comedy. 
that comedy doesn't have to just be surface shtick. That it also you can also create a truly funny, ironic story in addition to some entertaining surface shtick. Sure, but I think too much comedy is just that these days. Um, that's a, that's another conversation. But for all the comedy, what what resonates for me the most in the apartment is the the loneliness and the yearning of these characters played by Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. They're they're looking for love in a very tough, cynical world, and that will I think always be relevant and and fresh to audiences. And this is also one that let, uh, landed in your book, Christmas in the Movies. It's one of those uh, movies that takes place at Christmas time. Doesn't have necessarily a, a strong Christmas theme, but it made uh, our list of our uh, some of our favorite movies from your book, specifically for me, for Jack Lemmon. You want to talk about sophisticated comedy? If there's one person who's capable or was capable of sophisticated comedy, is Jack Lemmon, uh, one of my heroes. No question about it. And I mean, you know, he he makes C.C. Baxter. I mean, it's. It's almost on the level of, you know, Ray Fiennes or Anthony Hopkins. I mean, in terms of characters that really define and transcend their careers. And Jack Lemmon had a hugely long career with a lot of great iconic performances. But to me, this is, well, this and Some Like It Hot are probably, right. probably Some Like It Hot is the first one I think of, but this is number two. And, and they're both, both wilder. Right. Yeah. Both wilder. Yeah. From an Oscar perspective, I always like to see over time, you know, because you don't, like you said, you don't see comedies being nominated for best picture and then you start to think well why is that is it is is it a focus of the academy is it something else well it's because to your point they're just not good complex layered comedies being released it, it is a lot of surface stuff for for a quick laugh and you know i don't know if that's a, a, a comment on our times that you know we just want you know quick cheap stuff but yeah i think it's more of that they're just not being made if they were being made then then potentially they'd be um, included in you know in nominations. It also another factor that might come into this is the fact that you know now all you know movies are made for global audiences much more than they were back then. And you know rightly or wrongly, producers will think that the more deeper, complex, ironic forms of comedy won't won't play abroad. But of course, comedy in general is the one genre that doesn't play as well all all over the world because comedy is so specific to every culture. All right, time for top two. Yep, we're getting there. All right, my number two is Lawrence of Arabia, 1962. Um, again, it's about blend. <laughs> and it's a common theme here. This is the blend of epic and intimate, of big scale and small scale. You know, we, and I talked about this with the Godfather movies too, but this Lawrence of Arabia is more obviously of what we think of when we think of the word epic, the huge vistas, the thousands of, people in the frame and horses and camels, big scale battles. But what always impresses me about Lawrence of Arabia is that David Lean keeps just the right balance of those types of epic uh, sequences with much more intimate personal sequences of, of Lawrence in thought, for example. There's a scene where he's sitting in the desert thinking for like a good minute or a minute and a half of, of screen time. And that's it, just sitting thinking. And that is as riveting as the attack on Aqaba. And that's a pretty impressive that, you know, that Lean and O'Toole were able to, to make that work. David Lean, he said, all art is about balance. And it's really the balance that, that works here. In addition to that, the mysteriousness of T.E. Lawrence. I mean, what the film is really about is trying to figure out who Lawrence is. Every other character asks who he, who he is or talks about it or wonders about it. They're trying to figure him out. He's, he's described as 
many different things in the film, in the dialogue. And we are always trying to figure out what makes him tick. And in a way, that is what makes this film, despite its length, stand up to repeat viewings, because we're always trying to solve this mystery that never really gets solved. Not really. And that was, you know, T.E. Lawrence in real life had this 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 question about him. He's a very enigmatic figure in history and in this film. And Lawrence of Arabia is also really relevant for its content. I mean, you know, we see it depicts the seeds of what would define the conflict and tensions in the Middle East. It shows what led to the Western powers redrawing the map of the Middle East and setting the borders of many modern day nations in that area. And, you know, if the second half of the film were as perfect as the first, this would have gotten number one on my list. But the one flaw that I always find in Lawrence is that part two gets a little bogged down in the battles. It loses a little bit of its focus, but there's a minor point because overall, this is a masterpiece. And and Peter O'Toole, I mean, this is the first time he was nominated for Best Actor. And he, I think, holds the record for number of nominations without winning, which is a shame in and of itself. Oh yeah, I mean he he got an honorary award I think, and that that was it. But it's it's not the same. You never won a competitive award, and um, yes, he definitely should have for this. I can't now remember who did win in 1960, but looking back now, it's hard to see that he didn't for this. Drum roll, number one, Casablanca, 1943. My favorite movie, but don't don't let me don't let me uh, you know don't think that influenced my choice. <laughs> um, and you know what? Again, it's the blend romance, cynicism, love versus duty. The idea of selflessness and love will, will always be, be relevant. It also, it, you know, Casablanca throws in just about everything but the kitchen sink and it works. There's comedy, including like screwball, madcap comedy in the dialogue, you know, crazy absurdist humor. There's suspense, there's adventure, there's melodrama, there's hot and heavy romance. It, it really shouldn't work. And, you know, like it happened one night in Silence of the Lambs, this is another film that, I mean, this was a a more major film than it happened one night, but it wasn't a film that they necessarily thought would be anything while they were making it. It was just an ordinary studio film, which ended up becoming this masterpiece that, you know, caught the imagination of of the country. Really, the, you know, it's (laughs) the lyrics of the song, As Time Goes By, give the key to why this film works. Never out of fashion, never out of date, as Sam sings. And Casablanca, I have seen more times than any other film we've talked about uh, on this show. And it always is fresh to me and always entertaining. And I always get wrapped up in it. And it's the well-oiled machine that was Warner Brothers in the 1940s. You know, it's the, the top heights of studio craftsmanship. Bogart and Bergman, they're kind of a, a, an odd in a way, mismatched screen couple, I think, but they're so different from each other. They're the types of movies they made, their personas, but that helps it work too, because of course, you know, World War II was thrusting people from all parts of the world with each other in strange new places. And so it works. Speaking of which, the supporting cast, all these Jewish emigre performers from Europe who had escaped the Nazis in real life, playing many of these great supporting roles, in one of the great supporting casts of film history. They're as important to the film as, as Bogart or Bergman or Paul Henry. And it just still works, works beautifully. What do you guys think? Do you love this movie as much as I do? 
Absolutely. I mean, if a it's it's got one of the most misquoted lines in, in, <laughs> yeah. in the history of film. It's as phenomenal now as it was the first time that I that I saw it. Uh, it seems like uh, when you ask someone, you know, what are the two greatest films ever made? It always comes down to two: one, Casablanca, and two, Citizen Kane. That's kind of where it where people are split. Um, I think one of the greatest things about this film is something we mentioned earlier in the in the show, and that is the fact that it it shows a version of wartime that is sensitive to the conflict happening, but is not in your face. And it tells personal stories, which um, always resonate more powerfully uh, with an audience. No, uh, no Oscar for Bogey on this one, though. No. Um... What are you going to do? Oscar is far from perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get you on the on the Academy, I think. <laughs> well, I think if I keep criticizing them, there's little chance of that. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I, I, I love the Oscars. I watch them every year. I am certainly an Oscar junkie, like most people who love classic films. But, uh, you know, part of the Oscars is, you know, um, frustration in uh, some of the choices. But that's all part of the fun. Well, this has been a lot of fun uh, to get your top ten, Jeremy, and uh, and get your expertise on some of these uh, fantastic films, and and a nice selection, I think, uh, from a lot of different genres and a lot of different time periods. And uh, speaking of which, in our next segment, we're going to come back and chat with you a little bit about um, your latest release uh, from TCM, Volume Two, The Essentials: Fifty Two More Must See Movies and Why They Matter. Chat a little bit about that, and uh, maybe you can uh, share a couple of your selections and how you pick those in our next segment. So. Stick with us. We'll be right back on Heilman and Haver. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Today is April 9th, and on this day in 1950, Bob Hope made his first TV appearance. While Hope presided over television's inaugural West Coast broadcast in 1947, his NBC debut on April 9th, 1950 was his first national television appearance. He went on to be a regular host of the Star-Spangled Review, a variety show produced by Max Liebman. Broadcast live from New York, the program was similar to Hope's radio show, a monologue, skits, and musical performances. And debuting today in 1976, All the President's Men, based on the book by Washington Post journalists Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward detailing their Watergate investigation. Redford felt that casting him as Woodward unbalanced the film, so he did the natural thing and cornered a star of equal weight at a Knicks game. And thus, Dustin Hoffman was cast as Carl Bernstein. The two actors memorized each other's lines so they could interrupt each other in character, leading to a much greater sense of authenticity in the film. And on this day in 2011, we lost American film director Sidney Lumet at age 86. A master of cinema, Lumet was best known for his technical knowledge and skill for getting top-notch performances from his actors and for shooting most of his films in his beloved New York. Lumet made over 40 movies during his career, including 12 Angry Men in 1957, Murder on the Orient Express in 1974, and Dog Day Afternoon in 1975. Thanks to OnThisDay.com and the Internet Movie Database at IMDB.com for today's trivia. With us today, our guest, Jeremy Arnold. And Jeremy, when we had you on uh, back in December to talk Christmas movies, uh, we chatted about your your TCM book, Christmas in the Movies, and asked um, a similar question, actually, to this one. How did the Essential series with uh, TCM come about? Uh, Was it something that uh, TCM approached you with? 
in 2015, I was approached by a publisher who had just signed a deal with Turner Classic Movies to create a line of film books. They had already decided they wanted to do a book companion to The Essentials, and they were looking for a writer. And I'd done a lot of work for TCM for their website over the years, so I was sort of a natural fit. And they, we weren't necessarily thinking there would be a second book or, or more beyond that, but the first one turned out so well that a second one eventually uh, became seen as a good idea. And I was happy to come on board and, and do another. There have been well over 300 movies shown on The Essentials on TCM since the series began in 2001. And each book is 52. So the idea is that each book is sort of a sampling of the 300 or so you know, total films on the master list of The Essentials. And uh, so maybe there'll there'll be a third one. I'm not quite sure yet, but um, but that's how it began. And since then, the, that publisher, Running Press, has produced many other books with TCM, uh, my Christmas book, and other books by other writers too. So it's a it's been a pretty successful series for them. Well, I noticed the book is ordered chronologically. Were there more decades? Because when you're looking through this list of essential films, were there more decades that were were more challenging than others to? limit the ones you put into the book? Or is you know, every decade pretty similar in the number of must-see films? Uh, no. Well, if you go to the to the back of the volume two, there is an appendix that lists all 318 movies that had been shown to date on The Essentials. And that's also chronological. And you can see there the ratio of films in each decade. And in each book, I actually consciously worked with TCM and Running Press to have... Um, the number of films from each decade roughly match the ratio of the overall number of films from those decades that have been shown on the program. So there are more movies. I think the the 40s are the most represented decade on the essentials. I can't remember for sure, but whatever. I so saw that's why there are more 40s movies than any other decade. And there have only been a handful of films from the 80s or 90s. So there are only one or two films from those decades in each book. The idea was to represent the series as well as the movies overall in terms of a blend of genre and star and filmmaker and so forth. So here's my question. What now in the year 2021 qualifies as a classic movie? We were talking about Silence of the Lambs earlier, and it turns 30 this year. And if you're judging cars, and I, I suppose music <laughs> now, because it's the stuff I listened in high school that's playing on the classic station, <laughs> is it the same with films? Is it anything over 30 years old? How, how does TCM qualify a, a classic? I don't know that there is a hard and fast rule. Like it has to be X number of years old. However, yes, I think TCM would say Silence of the Lambs is a classic and part of the reason would be its age. But also when Silence of the Lambs opened, I think everyone saw it as, a, as an instant classic. Uh, we knew it would become seen as, as a classic. Of course, there are other films that you don't see it that way at the beginning, but years later, they turn into one. And those are some of the things I address in these books, actually. You know, there are many reasons a film can be essential. But with, with TCM, I mean, my personal view is that it's not so much the definition of a classic, but it's more studio era. For me, Turner Classic Movies, the bread and butter of that channel has always been the movies made up to about 1960. I think when we turn on TCM, we kind of expect that we'll find a movie from before 1960, because that's how we think of TCM. That is not as much the case these days. And I have no problem with that because, yeah, we're now in 2021, so it's fine to start sprinkling in more of the more recent films. And when they have special themes and so forth, it, it, that's a good excuse to, to do so. 
but in terms of the essentials series, it until I mean the last couple of years they had more more recent films than they had in the past, but the vast majority of the essentials films are really from before 1970, and that's why the books are dominated by by those eras as well. But for me, yeah, a classic can be any era. All right. Well, if you had to pick, and and maybe we already have heard the answer to this, or maybe not, but if you had to pick one or two of the must see, must see movies, what what would those be? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, one or two. I mean, come on, guys. You're <laughs> Out of fifty-two, the greatest films ever made. I mean, okay, I'll put Casablanca and Lawrence of Arabia aside because we just spoke about those in our previous segment. But in the, from the recent, from the newest book, The Essentials, I am going to go out and say Notorious which is uh, one of my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movies. And again, it's a, just this beautiful blend of spy story and romance. And it's mixed so well that one couldn't exist without the other in that film. I mean, we, we hang as much on the romance between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman as we do on how the spy story is going to resolve itself. And it feels effortless when you're watching it. I mean, like the easiest thing in the world to have done, but wow, that's an impressive feat by Hitchcock there. The other one, I think I will pick Sweet Smell of Success, which is one of my favorite noirs, one of the last noirs of the classic era of film noir. Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis, uh, very cynical film set in New York. And But you know, what astonishes me about that film is that all the interiors were not filmed in New York, but you would swear that every frame of that film was. And that's because the exterior scenes on the sidewalks and in the streets were shot in Manhattan. And they're so vivid that when characters then walk through a corridor into a restaurant, for example, or into a club, it's seamless. And you really think that you're still in New York, but actually that was a meticulously reconstructed set on a Hollywood soundstage. It's really an, an incredible feat. And a film that was a huge flop when it came out. I mean, it was reviled, but it has since justifiably been recognized as a classic. And I would urge anyone to see it if they haven't already. All right. So Notorious 1946 and Sweet Smell of Success. And those are 1957. Jeremy, this has been awesome. Uh, that was such a fun uh, time uh, going through your top ten list. We'll have to get you back on. There's so many fun top ten lists that we could uh, that we could put together. <laughs> I'm sure and talk for hours. Indeed, I'd be happy to come back anytime. Thank you again to our guest, Jeremy Arnold. Make sure to pick up a copy of his latest release from TCM, The Essentials, Volume 2, 52 More Must-See Movies and Why They Matter, available along with the rest of his books at shop.tcm.com and everywhere fine books are sold. And make sure to follow Jeremy on Twitter at at JT underscore ARN. And join us next week, Friday, April 16th, when we'll be joined by veteran sound editor and Foley artist Greg Barbadell. As a sound editor, Greg worked with clients like Peter Bogdanovich for St. Jack, 1979, John Carpenter for The Fog, 1980, Francis Ford Coppola for The Escape Artist in 1982, and won an Emmy for Outstanding Sound Editing for Nonfiction Programming for Dinosaur Planet in 2003. Greg has also worked as a Foley artist on shows like The Walking Dead and Breaking Bad, and films like Suicide Squad, The Revenant, and Mortal Kombat. You won't want to miss this episode. And remember, Heilman and Haver can now be heard every week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. If you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. And we'd love to hear from you, so join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. And until the footlights come up again, thanks for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver. <laughs> <laughs>